0: Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of making you talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it?
0: And Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. This week, we're reading the handwriting of men and women whose experiences were being recorded in the fourth week of April 1943. So again, let's have a quick recap of what's going on where. On the Eastern Front, the Red Army is moving through the Kuban. In Europe, Bomber Command is laying mines of the Baltic on a massive scale. Maltese Spitfires, or Spitfires on Malta, destroy their 1,000th enemy aircraft. And the body of a British Staff Officer is washed up on the Spanish coastline in an attempt to deflect attention from the forthcoming invasion of Sicily. In the Far East, American forces occupy Ellis Islands, but the most significant actions this week are in North Africa, in Tunisia. From the Sherwood Forester's capture of a tiger tank between Medjel's al-Bab and Montano, a tank you can still see at the Bovington Tank Museum, by the way, to the fury and determination that results in the capture of Longstop Hill, this is a week of progress for the Allies. Let's catch up with Regimental Sergeant Major Jack Ward of the 56th Heavy Regiment, dug in to the south of Grenadier Hill.
3: April 24th. Received an air letter tonight. Awful condition. But we are in what I hope is the last battle for North Africa. And up to the time of writing, we are making good progress. I'm making these notes in a dugout just south of Grenadier Hill. Something you must have heard about in the wireless and in the papers. <laughs> they made an attack on us on Tuesday night, 20th of April. And we fought a tough battle under the hills opposite over R H Q. Jerry shelled us near R H Q. We got some support from the tanks... ...but some of these shells landed within 10 yards of our office truck. Jerry overran one of our battery positions... ...with the result that two officers got it... ...and 47 men are missing. Jerry was cleared from the area... But only one man was found dead, so it's concluded that the others are prisoners. Well, that is what we hope. Move from this area forward to where I am writing on the night of the 21st of April. We had quite a tough ride, Jerry in a tank battle in this area, just before we left the last position. And there is one Churchill out of action just short of RHQ. The big battle started on Thursday night with a heavy artillery bombardment and then we captured some important ground in front of this RHQ, while on our left, Longstock was captured. There's still heavy fighting to do before the end. We have had some air attacks in this area, while up on the wagon line we lost one man from bombing, I forgot his name, the Eastbourne chap, bad luck. We lost an officer this morning on Longstock, also one officer and seven men missing from another battery. If things go right, we should be in tune is by the end of the month. I had no stop for nearly three days, but off duty tonight, so hope for a spot. Great fun while it lasts, but no need for sulks. Twenty seventh could be twenty eighth of April. Things are moving so fast it's a job to keep up with the time and dates. <laughs> fast moved into this new position and the time is just after midnight. I'm on duty. And I forget the date. I had to take a party forward this morning to dig in this new position and here we are. All moved in. Jerry is moving back. But why stand here fighting every inch? We were shelled this morning but luckily nobody got hurt. The batteries are turning out every day. There are some good officers and men going west. We're now about six miles north of Medges. I should never forget that town. Had some luck with parcels and papers. Also free air mail yesterday. One parcel, two bundles of paper and the air letter. One each from Mick and Blighty. Don't know when I shall answer. 29th of April. I know the date this time. <laughs> I'm on night duty and things are pretty quiet outside. Only a spatter of gunfire now and then. Heavy fighting today. We have advanced slowly but it's all in the right direction. Jerry, as I've said before, is fighting every inch. Our tanks have been fighting to our left flank today and also a lot of air activity. But I'm getting lots of air support. Good front last night. Numbers 19, 21, 22 and 23 letters. April 30th. In full tropical kit tomorrow. (laughs) Want it. It's now very hot. The attack is slowing up. Jerry counterattacks, but our division's still holding position. Saw a Yank bomber shot down in flames this afternoon by shell fire. Bad luck for the air crew. Received Mum's photo this afternoon; it just about fits in my pocket. <laughs> also received some papers. Good
2: work. The advance continues. Notes Jack. Names such as Longstop, Tangucha, and Hydus are, he reports, now in British hands. Another diarist in the 56th Heavy Regiment is Terry Milligan, who will morph into that incredible comedian and writer Spike Milligan after the war. In his wartime memoirs, Spike tells us the officer mentioned by Jack Ward is Lieutenant Tony Goldsmith. In fact, Spike's only entry on the 27th of April reads, Lieutenant Goldsmith buried on Longstop. He doesn't mention the premature discharge at Battery 18, the same day which killed five other ranks and seriously injured 13 more although they do regain their momentum, shooting down a 109 on the 29th. And there's another premature explosion of a shell this week, a couple of days later. Four other ranks killed and seven seriously wounded. Perhaps there was just too much going on. Jack mentions neither incident, but does still remember receiving the newspapers and makes a note of the weather. It's strange what seems important at a time like this. It's just as hot out at sea, and that's where we find Captain Bertie Packer sailing the battleship HMS Warspite towards Freetown. He's on a homeward-bound journey again, heading back towards the Clyde, where, he hopes, he and his men will be given a short period of leave while the ship undergoes repairs. He too is hearing news about North Africa, but he's getting rather frustrated by a lack of information about the whereabouts of his wife.
4: Saturday and Easter Sunday, 24th and 25th of April very hot practically on the equator following wind i wonder if joy could be in convoy ws-29 jewfreetown 28th of april the same day as we too much to hope flying aircraft on as patrol oiling destroyers and generally busy firing aa barrages and blind fire etc monday 26th of april across the equator during the night it is mighty hot The sailors wear no headgear and nothing whatever except a pair of shorts. There are only four on the sick list out of 1,400. They are brown as kanakas and looked magnificent. Yet we were brought up to think that in the tropics one must wear sun helmets, spine pads and cholera belts. On the Dublin, I remember that our commander, Lionel Sturdy, even insisted that the Swahili boys should wear sun helmets before being allowed to paint the ship's side. Where is the catch? Our men and officers have been wearing this costume, or lack of it, for over a year. The final stage on Tunis and Bizerta is in full swing, but little is being told us. USSR has broken off diplomatic relations with Poland. The Germans will love this. I don't know the reason, but I remember that last year in Fife, a Polish colonel said to me, ''We loathe the German brutalities and we loathe the Russian brutalities.'' But we prefer the Germans, for they are brutal with method. The Russians have no method. They are just brutal. Tuesday, 27th of April. At Freetown. Signal from Foreign Office West Africa asking how long Warspite wished to stay at Freetown and replied, as short a time as possible. 12 hours required to fuel. Wednesday, 28th of April entered harbour, warspite anchored by 1700, and I went straight ashore at King Tom's steps, not knowing if I might not find joy there. Convoy WS-29 had arrived in the morning, having left Liverpool about the 14th. I sent our walrus off at daybreak with a note to Brownfield asking him to scour the convoy for joy. So, would I find joy waiting for me? No. There was the car for me, but no joy. "'went off to combined HQ and was very disappointingly put out of my misery. "'Flags had searched the seven ships of the convoy, but no joy. "'She may be coming by a straggler, or in OS-47, a convoy due next week. "'Felt very flat because I was disappointed. "'I had had a strong intuition and had let my mind dwell on it "'and had convinced myself joy would be there. "'Well, I'm still disappointed grievously as I write two days later.' "'fixed up to move off with the convoy at fifteen hundred the following day "'and return to the ship. "'Although for myself deeply disappointed, "'I was very greatly relieved to hear that we will proceed to the Clyde, "'give leave and be ready to move by the first of June. "'That should be ten days' leave to each watch. "'I had feared there would be no leave, or just two or three days, "'and I know what a terrible, unhuman thing it would have been "'for my fourteen hundred officers and men, "'most of them a couple of years from home.' It all makes such a difference, and I remember the tough time I had with the Manchester under similar circumstances. I fought for their leave and won it then. How well it was worth it, in spite of being considered soft by certain high ups. So what if I was an ice cream pudding, cold inside and hot chocolate sauce outside? How one gets about. I was here only six weeks ago, since when I've steamed and flown about six thousand miles seen Piet and Mum and Fred and Norman and Molly and Cecil and all my old friends in Cape Town and Durban and taken over my ship and am now back to the UK. And no joy. I'm not interested, for myself, but for my ship's company, I'm thrilled. Nothing could be better than leave and a crack at the enemy again. Thursday, 29th of April. Gave a small party at 1100 to the Commodore, Rain, of Stratheden, the Master of the Britannic, Robinson, young Jameson of the Devonshire, Carlyle, and all the destroyer captains. Landed at noon for lunch with Admiral Rawlings. Found Pegram's flag's Lieutenant Cook still there, and all the staff. Took Carlyle, young Jameson, and Rain back to their ships, and found warspite already shortened into three shackles. Stepped on board, and ten minutes later we were away. As soon as we were past the gate, I broadcast to the ship's company. This is the captain speaking. I am very glad to say the cabin-flat astrologers and mess-deck prophets are right. We are on our way home. I was on the bridge. From the bowels of the ship came a tremendous cheer. Good to hear. I then went on to say that, of course, the war came first, but Admiral Somerville had asked that as much leave as possible should be given to the ship's company and that I had sent him proposals asking for at least a week to each watch. How glad I was, etc., etc., and that it was some small reward for steadfastness in a trying year's service in the Indian Ocean. That, and soon, I hoped, we would be at grips with the enemy. Friday, 30th of April. Great excitement. Attack by Catalinas, 50 miles away. We had our course diverted. During the night, we passed convoy OS 46. Is Joy on board? She is well escorted with six corvettes, I believe. I am hopeful she might get transferred to the fast convoy WS 29 at Freetown. End of month notes. Captain's pay signed off by Duckworth. £96.5 shillings and threepence. Less any advance of pay while on passage. So that's the monthly rate of pay for quarter ending 30th of June 1943, 91 days. 91 times 61, plus 7 and 6, plus 10, plus £8 entertainment allowance. That's a total of £365, one and tenpence. Less allotments of £50 each spent in advance, less income tax, which means... Moneys remaining £28, 19 shillings and a penny. We need to take a quick break.
0: We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Bertie Packer may have been watching the pound, shillings and pence, but someone else is paying attention to detail is Oscar W. Griswold. The W stands for Wolverton, by the way. Griswold has spent the last two weeks leapfrogging from island to island in the South Pacific. He's finally arrived on Guadalcanal. The Japanese, who've been in occupation here since May 1942, were overwhelmed by the combined Allied operations. The plan now is to develop this island and its neighbour, Tulagi, into major bases that can support the Allied advance further up the Solomon Islands chain. Before that can happen, though, Major General Oscar Griswold needs to take stock of the situation and understand what's happened so far.
5: 24th April, 1943. Spent all day inspecting at Tulagi and Florida Islands, whenever defences met key people. 25th April, 1943 Went over the Mount Austin battlefield with General Patch, Colonel McClure, and several of the battalion commanders who actually fought the battle. The Jap strong point on Mount Austin was well organized. Jap positions, perimeter defense, very strong. Went over the ground and saw where the one tank knocked out at least 12 of these pillboxes and turned the tide of the battle, thus beginning the mopping up. View from Mount Austin towards Kokumbuna is very impressive. General Patch pointed out on the ground his scheme of maneuver. I think this will go down as one of the most decisive battles of the Japanese war. The country is terribly difficult. The supply of water and rations is a major problem. This was a decisive defeat for the Japs, the first in this war, and definitely halted their advance on our supply line. Sandy Patch did a fine job here. He deserves all credit for moral and physical courage and tenacity. Had there been a weak man in command, it is conceivable that Tojo might yet have a foothold here. It was a great privilege to go over this field with the commanders concerned. The supply road up Mount Austin is a major achievement. The air was nice and clear. Off to the north was clearly outlined the island of Savo, the locality where more warships have been sunk than anywhere else on the globe. When this war is written up, History will show that some of the world's most important naval engagements have been fought on the waters which showed up so visibly today from Mount Austin. Today is Easter Sunday. Services were general throughout the camp. A feeling of reverence was very evident in the officers assembled at Mount Austin. This is hallowed ground. It's been consecrated by the blood of fine American soldiers thousands of miles away from home. Before we left Mount Austin, I called them all together and on this fine Easter day, in the midst of the jungle of Guadalcanal, we raised our hats in honor of those soldiers dead of ours. On returning to camp, General Patch, his aide, and I, all Episcopalians, attended a special communion service held for us by Bishop Baddeley. He is at present visiting on Guadalcanal. Later today, a hostile air raid of 20 Zeros and 16 bombers was intercepted and stopped before striking their target. Reported casualties, ours, two planes, enemy, five planes. 26th April 1943. General Patch left for Numia, and I assumed command pursuant to the following order. Major General Oscar W. Griswold, 02883 USA, will assume command of 14 Corps at guadalcanal Tulagi, russell Island area. In addition, A.J. Barnett, Brigadier General G.S.C., Chief of Staff, and Doyle Spurlock, 2nd Lieutenant A.G.D., made Duke Chief of Staff. Note to self, how far away is home? Answer, by rail, Tacoma to Hamilton Field, 840 land miles. By air, Hamilton Field to Numia, 7,207 nautical miles. By air, Numia to Henderson Field, 1,109 nautical miles. Air warning twice today. Condition green is okay. Condition amber means a possible attack. Condition red means expected attack. Tulagi was attacked late tonight, damage and casualties unknown. Note to self, later, no casualties. 27th April, 1943, Tuesday. Conference with Captain Shock, U.S. Navy, today to facilitate unloading of ships. At present, over 5,000 combat troops engaged in housekeeping. Reorganizing of this activity must be made. Captain Shock is in charge of all naval base activities here and vicinity to and Russell's. Spent the PM inspecting the beach installations from Coley to Lunga. 28th April, 1943. Wednesday. This atroburn upsets my tummy. Taking it easy. Don't feel any too well. Making arrangements to visit Clean Slate, John Hester's place, tomorrow by PT boat. Jap party landed at Beaufort Bay, Guadalcanal, during the night. Estimated strength, about 15 men. Early reports indicate that our boys killed nine of them. Complete report expected later. 28th and 29th April, 1943. Thursday and Friday. Inspected the Russells. John Hester getting along fine. Good defensive plan. Sick rate very good. Much improvised. Road conditions terrible.
2: Back to North Africa. In fact, the more we move from one person's account to the next, the more we begin to see the total enormity of trying to understand these logistics, the interlocking pieces of having a war going on in several theatres at the same time. Chester B. Hansen, Chet, or Captain Hansen to give him his due title, is supporting General Omar Bradley out in Tunisia. As Jack Ward has told us, the German and Italian forces are putting up a hard fight, but the Allies have now built up a head of steam. Even though the Axis troops are desperately trying to hang on to the jagged, hilly outcrops that give them a terrain advantage, Toucourt is learning the lessons of war pretty swiftly, and their performance on the battlefield has markedly improved since Fondue and Kasserine. We rejoin Chet as he's taking stock of Bradley's plans for the latest attack, and he gets a visitor on loan from the French.
6: April 24th. Bridges turn to run out with the general today and I am left behind to attend to several details and generally waste my time. Opposition is pulled out from the front of us, in front of our trap, hoping, no doubt, to suck us in. We do not bite, and General keeps close personal tab on units, sparking them up to take objectives quickly as possible. Order calls for complete destruction, and he's anxious that it be accomplished. G2 Estimate betting on an early surrender of British 8th manages to crash through on their line to the east, Other capabilities include the withdrawal of forces to another rear position or the establishment of a baton in North Africa. I'm betting on an attempted withdrawal when the moon is dark. To bed late, after a letter to Marge and Bill Biesel, which I destroyed on the following day. April 25th. Campaign progressing satisfactorily, with current objectives being reported taken according to schedule. Little news of units to our south and almost nothing from the 8th. Montgomery notoriously reluctant during an operation of this sort. Supply targets met on ammunition and gasoline, though rations are still below original scales. Today we inherit a horse, and I have quite a time getting an orderly to take care of him. Tomorrow I shall have to get out and forage for oats and barley. Horses lend lease from the French. General off early with Brigadier Dumfries to the Ninth Division area to spark up Eddie and encourage him. Also to check on supply and equipment problem of the Corps Franc on our north flank. No air activity spotted. Today is Easter. I attended services at 9 in Olive Grove below our command post. Preacher talked of the real meaning of Easter and congregation crowded the cleared area, men wearing their weapons, sitting on their steel helmets, singing of the resurrection. Meanwhile, an electric motor generator hugged away on its gasoline engine and normal functions of the command post continued. Easter seems far away. To us, it's just another day. Another day of fighting for the troops at the front. Long ride out over difficult road to Corfranc. Jungle growth over heavily rolling hills. Need for machetes and sector. French are free French, and native grooms not on too friendly terms with the other French in this theater. They are dressed in British uniforms and operate both American and British motor vehicles, as well as American arms with which they have been scantily supplied from the 9th Division, general making an effort to have them supplied with equipment and arms relegated to other French units in non-combat areas. Troops distinctly colorful, especially native units, ride horses and wear Arab cassocks. French officers well-decorated with ribbons, many of them quite elderly. Likewise, many of the soldiers appear to be anti-fascist Spaniards. One company commanded by a Spanish admiral, another by a French doctor. Speak to German prisoner who believes Japanese are not in Tripoli while German paratroopers occupy Tobruk. We laugh uproariously. German is poor example of Aryan, looks hungry in ill-fitting clothes. Part of 999th Division, combat prisoner outfit, and was a communist before Hitler in Germany, spent time in a German concentration camp. Another is likewise an anti-Nazi, tastes first candy in five years, and enjoys American cigarettes. Tells us they are driven into battle by German officers and non-commissioned officers armed with machine pistols. No chance for them to win in this war. If they fight, they are killed, and if they don't, the Germans kill them. Past another on the road with his hands high in the air. Polak, he shouts, to signify that he is a Polish prisoner conscripted for service in the German army. General remarks that he'd probably make a good soldier on our side if we gave him the chance to go into the fight against Germans. Hates Hitler, as many of these prisoners appear to. Return via the 15th Vac Hospital and I witness an operation on a man's chest in operating room while General calls on McNair to pin the Purple Heart on him, which is upside down, incidentally. McNair to be evacuated, though he insists he's strong enough to continue trip, bad hole in shoulder, which will leave permanent injury. A complete change of tempo
0: now, back to Edinburgh and to Mar Blythe's regular correspondence with her son David. There's an intuitive sense that the North African campaign might be drawing to a conclusion, but that doesn't mean there's any let-up in training pilots and crews who'll be tasked into Europe. It's April 1943. We now know an invasion of Sicily is on the cards, an ongoing bombing campaign, and in the not-too-distant future, there may even be a need for some gliders to be towed out on a sortie somewhere. Who knows? Who knows? That will mean deploying a steadfast fleet of Dakotas, Albemarles, Halifaxes and well-equipped Stirlings, and that means young men still need training to fly them, stock them, repair them and get them pointing in the right direction. Flight officer David Nan blythe is in Canada, getting to grips with the skills needed for some confident navigation. Every week he tries to write home to his parents, his sister and his gran, and to let them know what he's been up to. Julia, his mum, writes back
7: april the ninth, dear david thanks for your air graph of 14th of april we will be eagerly looking out for these chocolates and hope they arrive in good condition dad and joan are discussing how they were to be divided but i'll have a hand in the business too thanks a lot joan was at ian's house last night as his aunt was here from oxford so she thought she would take the first letter you sent from Canada, the one describing your visit to Detroit with her, to let them know how you were enjoying yourself. Mrs Ferris thought it was a good, grand letter, and asked Joan to let him have it on loan for a while. Fame for DNB again. Dad is working tonight, and so is Willie. Business is brisk, so Joan has gone to see Tales of Manhattan. It's a very good picture. I'm sorry I only have one aircraft in the house tonight, but if I receive a letter from you on Saturday, then I shall write again. Hope everything is going okay with you, as we're all fine here. All my love, Ma.
2: Port Albert, Detroit. Those flyboys do get about a bit. Port Albert is a small lakeside village on the sandy shores of Lake Huron in Huron County, Ontario. At its peak, the airbase population exceeded that of the town itself. Students like David would take either a bus or the train to Goodrich, nearby, for excitement and a little entertainment. Huron County was a dry state at the time, although we do know there was a young, rather ingenious local woman called Josie who operated an illegal drinking club. You couldn't buy a drink over the bar, but you could buy a membership that came with a drink. Very cunning. Anyway, young David is starting to get some hours in, and is really quite proud of his progress so far.
8: Dear Ma, I've just received airgraph number eleven, dated ninth of April, and page one of airgraph number ten, dated sixth of April. No doubt page two of airgraph number ten will be coming along soon. David Butchard will be delighted with his new job of visiting the various towns. Well, he deserves a break. I see that you have rather a novel idea in your adaptation of the Wings for Victory campaign, that of sticking a few stamps on a bomb to be dropped in Nazi land. They'd certainly collect some cash that way. The garden will soon be in bloom again, and Dad will be seeing the results of his labels. Now the spring seems to be here, there's a tremendous change in the appearance of the countryside. Before, you could see nothing but snow all over the place. Now the grass is fresh green, and the trees are beginning to bud, and the little squirrels are showing their faces and their tails. We've been doing a lot of flying recently now that the weather is better. My hours are now as follows. Daytime, 49 hours and 40 minutes. Nighttime, 19 hours and 40 minutes. Total, 69 hours and 20 minutes. Plus, signal school of 10 hours and 45 minutes. Grand total, 80 hours and 5 minutes. Not bad, eh? Like a cricketer. I'll soon be getting my sentry. I didn't write a letter last week along with my two aircrafts telling you about Cleveland because I couldn't think of anything else to write about and as I'm rather stuck for news this week, I won't be writing a letter along with this. In fact, I think that usually I'll be able to give you all the Jen in a couple of aircrafts. If at any time I'm overflowing with Jen, I'll write a letter. Is that okay? I'm glad that everything at home is going okay and that Gran is still a tough guy. I'm sure she'll be out playing tennis this summer. Please give my regards to Mrs Lyle when you see her. Also to Mr and Mrs Patterson and Baby Patterson. And any of my friends that you may run into. That's all for now, Ma. We'll beat these so-and-sos soon. Love to all. David.
0: One of those who volunteered to join the recently formed 617 Squadron at RAF Scampton was 33-year-old Charlie Williams. Charlie was an Australian, one of many from the Duke nations, who'd answered the call for volunteers, even though he was in a reserved occupation, helping to run a sheep station in northern Queensland. Charlie was 30, single, and wanted to see something of the world. Better than that, he'd already learned to fly. He was called up in 1941 and reached England in early 1942, just in time to take part in the first 1,000-bomber raid against Cologne in May that year. As a wireless operator, he joined 61 Squadron and had almost completed his first tour of 30 Ops with fellow Australians, Flight Lieutenant Norman Barlow and his crew, when he saw a notice asking for volunteers. A special squadron was being formed. The Australians put their names forward and joined on the 25th of March, 1943. But, by this time, Charlie was also deeply in love. He'd not long met Gwen Parfit, working as a secretary in Nottingham, R.E.F. Scampton was just that bit further away from Syston and so Charlie began writing letters to her, almost every day. She was always Bobby to him. They had fallen in love so completely they planned to marry just as soon as he managed to get some leave.
9: April 24th. Bobby, darling. I only hope you managed to get home on the bus. I had visions of you spending a night in the office... The day my 48 commences has changed and I simply don't know when it will be. I wish they'd make up their minds. Then I'd know where I stood. I'll let you know as soon as I can. April 25th. Bobby Darling. Sweetheart, how is everything? I was hoping to hear from you today but forgot that it's a Sunday. I'll be very disappointed if I don't get a letter tomorrow. I'm going to see our station Padre and should be able to get all the information I need from him about that permit we were discussing. And hope I can tell you all about it when I see you. April 27th. Bobby Darling. I arrived home okay last night. No trouble getting the gates unlocked. It was so good to see you again. I always miss you when I come back here. And I've been thinking about you a great deal. Cannot tell you anything definite about my 48, but we will let you know as soon as possible. And I hope things will be different after they've seen and spoken with me. April 28th. "'My darling Bobby, I got your letter today at lunchtime "'and was so pleased to hear from you. "'I do like to get your letters. "'It's the next best thing to seeing you. "'Many thanks for the good luck charm. "'I've put it on my chain with the other gadgets "'and hope it's as good as you say. "'We are very busy today, "'cleaning up new rooms and offices. "'We have a big do tomorrow. "'The group commander, the air vice-marshal, "'is inspecting the station and we'll be having a special parade.' We'll all have to be up at the flights at 8.15 tomorrow morning, so I'll have to get up earlier than usual. Went to an ENSA show last night. The band played the Warsaw Concerto. The solo was played by a pianist. It was a Russian girl, and she was very good. Still no news about my 48, though. April 29th. My darling Bobby. I was so pleased to hear my 48 will be over the east of England, as it'll mean I'll see more of you. I'm looking forward to seeing you on Saturday, but not looking forward to the commencement of hostilities. I expect I'll stand up to the barrages, all right, but the trouble is, you'll have to carry on the fight after I've gone. Never mind, my dear, they they may see things in a different light when they've met me. I'll ring you sometime before 1pm on Saturday, but if by any chance I cannot get through, it's almost certain I'll be back by 3pm. And I hope to meet you at the usual place at that time. I must sign off now, darling. Cheerio your loving Charles.
0: Finally this week, let's rejoin sapper Harry Wilson. Harry's memoirs are a great insight into what we might call the less exciting aspects of the war, sometimes. Having said that, the well-boring sections he's attached to were incredibly important in the bigger picture. Finding water, laying pipes, filling reservoirs, thousands of lives depended on their ability to work day and night if necessary. Cypher clerks also had a vital role to play, but, well, when you're thousands of miles away from Bletchley Park, you're not what you'd call at the sharp end of code-breaking. However, combine the two, and we have a young man who's attached to a section with purpose, even if he's still working out what his purpose is. Let's catch up with Harry now. He's coding live messages. Low-grade communications to start with, but still important. Saturday 24th, busy till one thirty am
1: after that we manage to get some sleep. On night duty we take our blankets with us to the office and hope for the best. As a rule signals don't send in any messages after midnight unless they have a high priority, though officially all messages, irrespective of their priority, are supposed to be delivered at once and deciphered without delay. Took an evening stroll towards Friach, returning at dusk, evening serene. "'Birds sang and frogs croaked or warbled in the flooded grasslands "'and the reeds and the rushes of the mountain water "'that collected in pools by the roadside. "'Sunday 25th, Easter Sunday. It "'Remained bright till the afternoon when a sudden thunder shower burst upon us, "'laying the dust that had accumulated during the last few days. "'It passed away to leave the sky as blue as before.' As I went on duty in the morning men were playing football outside the square and a church attendant sang hymns in the camp commandant's office. 3 Corps HQ seemed almost jolly. I spent a lot of time at a brigade message trying to decode some awful mess. If part of the message is doubtful, the decipherer chooses the most likely interpretation and places a question mark against it. The question mark is most important. If he forgets it, and if the message is incorrect and is acted upon, he will get into a row. To Zali for an hour, I was drinking coffee in the Lido when an announcement from a German radio station boasted that the IRA would continue to resist English oppression. Every time I come into this Lido I hear a German programme of some sort. I'm sure the proprietor is pro-German. The many British customers make no complaint, though. Sometimes they call for the London news. Wednesday 28. The very warm weather continues. I don't suppose there'll be any more rain until the autumn. Colonel Lloyd, the signal CO, is gone. He published a valedictory order of the day expressing regret that he wasn't going into action with us. So we were going into action, were we? He went to say that our chance to avenge Dunkirk was coming, and the thought filled me with pride and delight, until it occurred to me that I might have to do the part of the avenging. Well, I'm willing to face the risk, but I don't want to, and I think every soldier below the rank of a colonel feels the same.'
0: That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy Written and produced by Meryn Walters The executive producer is Tony Pastor